Good morning. Okay. I'll just pray for like one more second. Um, Father, I just pray uh, for your peace and uh, just patience and just that your words would unfold um, like a flower blooming this morning. In Jesus' name. Um, so I'm going to start in Acts chapter 17, if you'd like to turn there. Um, in this passage, uh, Paul, the Apostle Paul, has been to Thessalonica. They were not very kind to him. Uh, after that, he went to Berea, and they were more reasonable men, and listened to what he had to say. And then after that, he ends up in Athens. So this is Acts chapter 17, verse 16. And it says, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he got separated from, I think it's Timothy and Silas, he got, or he got separated from some friends. Um, and while he's waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. Um, if you go to Nashville, Tennessee, you can see a, a full-scale reproduction of the Parthenon. Tom and I have seen it. And the uh, statue of Athena, it's creepy. I'm with Paul. It's, it's right, it, was, it creeped me out. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. So this place, um, Athens, was the center of uh, worshiping Athena. And the place that he's talking about where they went, the meeting of the Areopagus, um, it's also called uh, the Hill of Ares, the god of the Greek god of war, or Mars Hill. And um, there's a myth that Ares uh, kills Ares kills somebody, and and this is the place where the other gods uh, put him on trial for this you know, killing this person, and he's acquitted, and all this drama happened there. So peers, right? Like, if you're one of the gods, you know, there's really no, like, real hierarchy. You're just one of the gods. And so peers, um, debating morality with one another without a higher power being present. And so um, we see the same thing happening here where there's uh, philosophers of different camps uh, just having conversation. And so Greek, um, the, the father of philosophy in Greece was uh, Socrates, and, and he was famous for um, having a school where people asked each other questions. And this was like a way of learning, was asking question after question, kind of endless questions. And actually, um, he died because he asked too many questions. And, and so this is, uh, so this, culture of debate, it's, it's a very Greek thing. It's a very Western culture. So the Epicureans, they are, um, their philosophy was in opposition to Stoicism, um, and it's materialistic, it's hedonistic in the sense um, 
like that they felt like the greatest good came from seeking pleasure, but through tranquility. So um, to freedom from physical pain and fear. And the Epicureans sought to know more about the world, but to limit desires. So things like politics and marriage really got in the way. They stirred up too much of your, I guess we'd call it the flesh. And that would put you out of balance. And so that was kind of their uh, basis of philosophy. Um, Stoic philosophy emphasized a virtuous life in order to achieve eudaimonia or uh, the highest human good or living the good life. So trying to figure out how to live a good life, right? Um, which everyone should be interested in to some degree. You know, nobody wants to lead a bad life. <laughs> and so their ideas um, that they, the Stoics um, believed in came from Plato, and they were the four um, cardinal virtues. And cardinal in the sense it means the hinge of a door. So this is what they felt like um, the, the good, a good life hinged on these four things. And... Um, C.S. Lewis talks about these uh, virtues in mere Christianity and that they are universally accepted virtues. And so the first one is prudence or wisdom, common sense, right? That's good. Uh, justice or being interested in fairness and righteousness. And then the third is fortitude, um, courage, endurance, forbearance, um, long-suffering, and then the last is temperance or self-control or restraint or moderation of appetites. Um, all of these are universally accepted. Uh, the details are different from culture to culture. But you will not go, uh, they propose, you're not going to go to any culture in the world where people do not value these four things. Like right? Nobody likes um, a gluttonous drunk and nobody likes an idiot. Nobody likes somebody who's constantly cheating everyone and stealing from them. So... These are universally accepted. Um, and the idea that there were four cardinal virtues, it was actually embraced very early in church history. So Ambrose of, I believe, Milan uh, was the first one to coin the phrase uh, only about 300 years after Christ. And so, um, and then they were embraced and expounded on by Augustine of Hippo and Thomas Aquinas as well. And so when you think of the Christianity that you have learned your whole life, um, in the culture that we live in, you have to understand it's Western Christianity. It is, it is Athens and Jerusalem mixed together from almost the very beginning. And Paul was a well-versed in this. He's, he's having these discussions with these men as well. Um, and you can see why um, anybody would want to embrace these four virtues. They're all, they're all good things. Um, the church, they added the three biblical virtues of faith, hope, and charity or love onto it. And so that makes up in early church writings this idea that there were seven uh, kind of key virtues. And then the opposite of that, um, their antithesis is where if you heard the idea of the seven deadly sins. So dramatic, right? The seven deadly sins. Well, they're just the antithesis of those seven uh, virtues. And like I said, um, what I'm just highlighting is that the Christianity that we have in our church traditions, uh, they do go all the way back to uh, Greece and this way of thinking about virtue. The cardinal virtues and virtues-based Christianity, which is just what I called it when I was writing this, um, it feels good and it feels right. It's good, um, 
good and moderate, you know, godly men and women is, is good. And can actually, it's easier, easier to achieve than Holy Spirit-led people, right? You can kind of put on some restraints in your flesh and have some morality apart from actually being led by Jesus on the inside. Um, and so when we talk about, I think a lot of times when we're talking about America and wanting to get back to an America with good Christian values, this is some of what we mean. We want to go back to uh, like a sense of morality um, where we all had morals in common. Um, this made me think of this passage in 2 Timothy um, chapter 3, and it, it talks about having a form of godliness but denying its power. So when you have uh, a base of virtue apart from an indwelling leadership of the Holy Spirit, that is having a form of godliness, but you're denying its power. Um, so this is 2 Timothy 3, verses 1 through 7. But know this, that in the last days perilous times will come, for men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers. He can't just be talking about the world. The world was already doing all of this. He's saying something unique is going to happen in the last days. This is going to even happen in the church, that we're going to be lovers of ourselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness, but denying its transformational power. I added the word transformational. But that's the power, right? That's the power of the cross is to, that, that we die and we're resurrected in Christ and we become a new creation. That is the power. So when you're just hanging out in church, but you're not being transformed, it's having a form of godliness, but denying its power. He says from such people you have to turn away. For of this sort are those who creep into households, and they make captives of gullible women loaded down with sins, led away by various lusts, always learning, and, but never able to come to the knowledge of the truth, which is they needed to die and be transformed into the likeness of Christ. Consensus of values can form a foundation to stand on. Um, so you can be in all different kinds of groups of people and we're agreeing on a certain values about those things. So this is a foundation in America was kind of these consensus of we had particular values. I'm sure if you, um, you know, if you go to China, there is more of a consensus about probably some different values, different things that we value. Um, Eastern tradition definitely values um, laying down your rights for the many and and here in the west or in america we definitely value individual rights over um the many so different foundations of values there is so much disruption in um other country i'm just going to talk about america because it's where i live there is so much disruption to the value system in america right now that it's causing so much disunity there isn't much holding America together to get anymore because we don't have much in common because we cannot agree about what is good. And so conservatism is trying to get us, it's just trying to 
it's trying to put the baby back in the womb or something. Like it's trying to do something impossible and go back to having a, a platform of common values that is impossible to go back to. The only way is to go, really the only way is to go up. So you think about things like abortion and how divided the country is or um, like our second amendment rights, racism. We're so divided on what is good and what is virtuous. The old ideas, this idea that we could just talk it out, if we converse enough about it, surely we're gonna, we could reason ourselves into the truth, um, come to a, a, a reasonable conclusion, it still hangs on and you can see it in social media. This, this is the town square where we're having conversations and trying to come to morality. And you can see it, I'm 41 and um, I look at my kids, I know, I look at my kids and I say, um, especially um, the views on sexuality are so drastically different from 20 years ago. Um, you know, it's like trying to explain to your kids what it was like to not have a computer. <laughs> it just, it, things are changing so quickly. And the base of morality, there's a whole uh, new um, kind of consensus forming about sexual morality and it's it's shocking to people who are not younger. I don't know, it shocks me. I don't know if it shocks anybody older than probably 40. Um, it does, it is shocking, but it's hard to understand if you're young and this is the environment that you grew up in that so because so many people are gathering around certain values and it's hard to understand that has not been true. <laughs> um, this is new. But um, there is a human desire to be righteous. It is like an innate thing that we have within us is to feel like we are doing what is right and we believe what is right. We want to be, nobody's born going like, I just want to be an unfair jerk to the entire world. We want to be good. We want to be good. Everybody wants to be good. And so we're all trying to figure out. Well, we have a really funny vehicle now called the internet where we can try to work out our, Good, what is good and what is bad in a really public way, and it's um, it's unique. The Lord told Israel through Isaiah um, in chapter one. He just says, "Come and let us reason together." So I don't want you to think that I'm super down on reasoning. Um, I, I classically educated my kids, and so. Well, there was a lot of talking and asking questions and some reasoning. Um, but the Lord said, he was talking, it's God talking to people saying, you come reason with me. And remember what God, happened when God reasoned with Job? <laughs> he asked some questions, but those questions were, they were rhetorical questions. They're to get him to think. Um, and, and his answer is, come, reason with me, though your sins are like scarlet, I'll make them white like wool. God's reasoning, his reasonable conclusion is, you need a miracle. You're dead, but I will make you white as wool. And that's miraculous. Um, in Proverbs 15, 22, it says, without counsel, plans go awry, but in a multitude of counselors, they are established. So there is a biblical... Um, foundation for taking counsel with other people, talking things out. But in um, Psalm 1, it says, uh, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. It's not just go 
take counsel with anybody. You, you want to be careful of who you're taking counsel with. And um, when we are together with other believers, do we discuss the world with a coat of godly virtues kind of skimmed on the top? Do we actually bring the Lord into the conversation? Do we, do we bring the word into the conversation? And the next step beyond that, though, is to talk to God in the middle of we're counseling each other, right? There is a point where you just got to stop talking and stop giving your advice. It's all weak. Anything that we all have to, I mean, you guys are some of the most godly, wise people I know, and you don't just talk and talk to me when I have a problem. You pray for me. We stop and talk to the Lord. Um, can we go to Revelation? Just We're going to flip through Revelation. I want to show you something that the Lord showed me. So we're going to start. We're going to go really fast into some different places in the book of Revelation. Start in chapter 5, where um, some people are asking questions, seeking counsel. That's right. If you're asking people questions, you might be seeking counsel. So I'm going to start in Revelation 5, verses 1 through 7. And I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. Then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? Who asked the question? The angel asked it. Who is he asking? Was that you, Abigail? She said, God, who is he asking? And who's in heaven? All kinds of creatures, uh, the elders, the people, you know, all of the things. He's asking all of heaven. And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth were able to open the scroll or to look at it. He's asking this question. He waited until John was there so he could ask it in front of him. Did the angel know the answer to the question? I think he did. I think he already knew the question. So why ask the question? He's trying to lead heaven to some truth. And he's, try, and he's showing, he's doing it in front of John. And John is weeping. He says, so I wept much because no one was found to, worthy to open and read the scroll or to even look at it. But one of the elders said to me, here's the answer to the question. Do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. And so... An angel asks a question of all of heaven. He waits until John is there because he's trying to lead him. He's trying to get, he's eliciting um, a response from heaven, including John at that point. And what does he come with? He comes with comfort, right? Um, Let's go forward to Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. And this is the cry of the martyrs. When I opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried out with a loud voice saying, they're asking, how long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? So who's asking the question? And who, is, who are they asking? The martyrs are asking. Who are they asking? They're specifically asking the Lord. This is wise to ask your questions of the Lord. Then a white robe was given to each of them, and it was said to them that they should rest a little while longer until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who would be killed as they were was completed. The Lord, 
They were in distress and they sought counsel with the Lord. How long? And what they got was comfort and they got an answer to their question. He told them how long. Let's go to seven, uh, chapter 7, 13 through 17. Then one of the elders answered, saying to me, who are these arrayed in white robes and where did they come from? So who's asking the question? And who's he asking? He's asking John. Who are these arrayed in white robes and where did they come from? And I said to him, sir, you know. Yes, right? I probably would have tried to answer. I don't know. Smart John. Go, John. Uh, you know. Um, and he said to me, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will dwell among them. They shall neither hunger anymore nor thirst anymore. And the sun shall not strike them nor any heat. For the lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and lead them to living fountains of water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Um, the angel is asking, or the elder is asking a question to highlight that John doesn't know. Um, the Lord will, if the Lord is asking, have you ever in your prayer life had the Lord ask you a question? Raise your hand if you've ever experienced that. The Lord has just asked you a question. Is he asking you a question because you know? <laughs> no. He asks his questions to help lead us to ask him questions back right? John, do you know? I don't. Sir, you know. You tell me. Um, person of authority, you're bringing this question up. It's, it's a rhetorical device <laughs> that you are leading me into. You want to lead me into some truth. Okay, and then one more. It, this is in Revelation 13, and this is a big one. Revelation 13, 1 through 4. Then I stood on the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rising up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his horns ten crowns, and on his heads a blasphemous name. Now the beast, the beast which I saw was like a leopard, his feet were like the feet of a bear, and his mouth was like the mouth of a lion. The dragon gave him his power, his throne, and great authority, and I saw one of his heads as if it had been mortally wounded, and his deadly wound was healed. And all the world marveled. And followed the beast. So they, who's they? All the world. All, so all the world worshiped the dragon who gave authority to the beast. And they worshiped the beast saying, who is like the beast? Who is able to make war with him? Who's asking the question? All the world. Who are they asking? They're asking the world. They're on the internet. They're asking each other. Like... They're trying to figure out. Um, and, and, the, and the answer is that the world will have for each other. You just can't. Like, give in. Give up. The world doesn't have any good answer. But um, I've really been struck by this um, description of the spirit that it says that the spirit of God is the spirit of counsel and might. And so when you go to God um, and you ask him, questions at the flip side of his good counsel is his power or his might to accomplish the thing that he's telling you to do if he's telling you wait he will give you he comes with the might all at the same time to give you the power to just wait we are counseled in a relationship 
Okay, so just um, everybody imagine a really crowded place with a lot of people. Does anybody have a distinctive place that they can imagine? A lot. A train station. So, and then I was just picturing Ezra, like down on the floor, army crawling under these chairs to deliver us letters all the time. And imagine everyone's feet and just like look at everybody's feet in this train station. Everybody's standing in the same place, right? We're all in the train station. We're all physically unified in some way. But inside of every person in that train station, is another man. It's called our inner man, our spirit man. Everyone's spirit man is standing in another place, right? We talked about this, um, or we sang about it, like that we're seated in heavenly places, right? Where's Samantha? She's right there. She's right there. But where is her spirit man? Say it, Tim. She's seated in heavenly places. She's with Jesus. She's seated in heavenly places. She's in, she's got, she's in two places. But so is everybody. Everybody has a spirit man. Where is everybody's spirit man that isn't seated in heavenly places? They're stumbling in the dark. Everybody is walking in a path or a way. Everybody is. And everybody is stumbling in the darkness until they find Christ. So let's go to John chapter 14. Um, uh, verses 1 through 6. I'm going to flip back there. Print the verses. I like reading them in the Bible better. He's so kind. Listen to the way that he talks to his friends. Um, this is John 14, verse 1. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. That where I am, there you may be also. And where I go, you know, in the way you know. So he tells them. You already know it. Thomas no, we don't. Lord, we do not know where you are going, and how can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. In Hebrews um, 10, verse 19 through 22, he says, Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he consecrated for us through the veil, that is, his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. It might not seem that it might not seem so different, um, but the place where your spirit is standing is completely different than where it was before you knew Christ. It's completely different. And this should give us a lot of compassion for everyone who is stumbling in the darkness. I mean, can you imagine if you just, you know, you were out for a walk in the woods and there was a blind man stumbling and didn't even ask for help because he didn't know there was any help. He's just stumbling around. The path that we're on, it's completely different now. 
Jesus is the path. He's the only path to the Father, um, and he's new, and it's living. Um, we were in a prayer meeting, and I just, for some reason, looked up the, um, in the concordance this word um, from Hebrews 10, the new and living way. The word new, um, it means new, hey, but it also means like freshly slaughtered or freshly killed, like a fresh kill, and it's living, like freshly dead and alive all at the same time. What is animating or bringing to life the new path? The path that everybody else is on is dark and it's dead. And it is his very presence is what is animating the walk that we're on. It is relational. The way is relational and it's not based on values. Although all of our values do change, they, they turn, they're turned on their head as we engage in the relationship. All values will change. But the way is a relationship, Right? Have you met people and they've just met Jesus and like not a lot of the values have changed, but they're different and they're, they're alive now. They were dead. They were dead in, in, in slavery and stumbling in the dark and now they're in the way and they're alive. And slowly all those things are going to change. The son, um, he gave us his spirit. So inside of us, we have the Holy Spirit and we're not alone anymore. He reoriented us, right? We were lost. Now we're found. He, we're, we were blind, and now we see. Oh, there. There's the path. There's, you know, you're not the man, the blind man stumbling in the darkness anymore. You can see. You know where you're going. You're not alone anymore. You have him inside of you. We're brought into the marvelous light, and we're no longer in darkness. He set our feet on a firm foundation, and we're not stumbling around anymore. We're not tripping. You know, can you? I just keep going back to this image of the blind man in the woods. Like he'd run into trees and stumble over everything. He'd be probably be so hurt. We're not doing that anymore. Praise God. Jesus is in us, and He's with us as our companion. He is before us. Um, seated at the right hand of the Father is our goal, and he is empowering us to walk with him on this path, and he is going to come back and get us. He's, he's everything. He's the power to walk it. He's the way to walk, and he's the goal to where we're going. Everything about the way is dependent on us abiding in the vine. Values are stumbling, if, you, if your Christianity is based on values, you're stumbling in the dark still. And you're trying to be good. Right? It's like the difference between stumbling in the dark or maybe stumbling in the dark with your hands out in front of you to try not to run into trees too fast. It's still stumbling in the dark. Consensus of values or agreement of values, it is, um, it's a house, it's built on sand, and it's raining right now. Can you, does it feel like the morality of our country is crumbling? And we had a, Tom and I had a conversation yesterday about just something um, in my family that's a relationship that is crumbling. And um, he was right to say that it is better for it to just crumble so it can be seen that it wasn't on a sure foundation to begin with. Like, and we, we, I feel like we sang about that again this morning, this idea of just let the light shine yeah, we do see how dirty it is when you put a nice light in our house, but better for the light to shine and know what's going on.
the Lord told me yesterday, um, he just reminded me that when the house of, you know, the consensus of values, it's already, it's being swept away. It's been raining for a while. It's being swept away. And when it happens, the thing, I just saw like a whip, like a crack of a whip. The thing that for just seconds, like the crack of a whip will line people up and bring them back into unity will be violence and fear. And so, and it'll, it'll just happen. Get everybody lined up. The enemy and the only motivator really to do that is going to be violence and fear. Um, and I just, I thought of like Herod and Pilate getting along to crucify Christ or the whole, when the whole world rejoices over the death of the two witnesses. But everybody who's walking in the new and living way, um, our relationships are becoming more solid. The Lord is um, like the strikes, uh, you know, I just see like those strikes of like the whip where it's like, it's straight out for a second and then it's, and then it's just all bent and falling apart again. It's doing the opposite with the church. It's like, we're going to become more solid. We're gelling. And the Lord is cleaning the house. So there's a faithful witness. Um, Unity is increasing and love is growing. We're not at a place, right? where the whole world knows that we belong to God because of the love between us. That's where it's going. We can't um, kind of just make it a goal. Like we're going to figure out all the ways to be more loving so the world will know. The darkness is getting darker and the brightness is getting brighter and we're just walking this path um, and asking the Lord to keep illuminating us. Um, What would Jesus do? You know, the bracelets? That is value-based Christianity. Um, Jesus did whatever the Father told him to do. That is the, that's real Christianity, is walking the path in a relationship connected to the vine and asking the Lord um, in that new and living way, like, okay, what are we doing? Okay, love. Yeah, love. But what does love look like? Okay, love looks like this. Okay, specifically right now in this relationship, Lord, what does love look like? My money. Yeah, I should be generous. Everybody likes a generous person, but how generous should I be? Oh, it feels kind of yucky. God, are you sure you don't want me to give anything right now? You want me to not give that person? Everybody else is putting money in the plate, and I shouldn't. I feel, you know, like, die to yourself. So we can't ask, what would Jesus do? Jesus, uh, listen and obey the Father, the foundation of Jesus' walk. Um, it was listening and obeying the Father. He said that we are, um, we're a city on a hill, right? We're the light of the world. And we're a lamp on a stand, and that is the light in the house. I feel like, personally, I always equate that to we are a witness to the world. We are also a witness to the church. And I feel like the witness to the world gets taught a lot, but the idea that every one of us is supposed to be a witness to the body, every one of us in this room is called to be a witness of Christ in this body, Um, just faithfully saying what the Lord is saying, what is true, what is not, praying for one another. So the lamp on the stand is a witness to the church. Let's go to 1 Timothy 1. 
3, and I really liked it in the New Living Translation, so I printed it out here. So this is 1 Timothy 1, um, verse 3. It says, When I left for Macedonia, I urged you to stay there in Ephesus and stop those whose teaching is contrary to, to the truth. Don't let them waste their time in endless discussions of myths and spiritual pedigrees. These things only lead to meaningless speculation, which don't help people live a life of faith in God. We should not, we should be very careful to be engaged in idle words or just endless talking to people. It's not good. We don't come to truth by talking more. We come to truth by humbling ourselves and talking to the Lord. The purpose of my instruction is that all believers would be filled with love that comes from a pure heart, a clear conscience, and genuine faith. But some people have missed this whole point. They have turned away from these things and spend their time in meaningless discussions. They want to be known as teachers of the law of Moses, but they don't know what they are talking about, even though they speak so confidently. So why are people spending time in meaningless discussions? Because they want, they want to look, they want to be known as teachers. I like to teach. This means something to me. And teaching is um, a gift from the Lord. But there's also a warning in James. Well, we can go there. Flip to, let's flip to James. In, um, in chapter two, he's, at the end of two, he's talking about like this idea that faith without works is dead. And then right after that, he says, my brethren, let not many of you become teachers knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. He's, it's all one thing, right? He's not, he didn't just change Topics. Because faith without works is dead, hey, be careful to want to be in front of people and instruct them in the way of the Lord. Because I hate to tell you guys, but, you know, he's, he's telling them, some of y'all are dead. Like, <laughs> you have no works backing up any of your faith. You're not, you're not living this life. How are you supposed to instruct people? I remember the first time I taught, and the comforting thought that came to my head was, well, I could monologue about Jesus for probably 40 minutes at least. And somehow that like gave me comfort because I know myself and that is true. I could monologue. You know, if nobody's going to interrupt me, I'll try to just make sure that I say something that's true and in the Bible and I could do that. Um, discipleship is teaching in the way though. And kind of what I thought I was going to talk about and where and what started all of this was this idea of discipleship and that discipleship is teaching while you're walking in the way. And so maybe not everybody is called to come up and give sermons, but how many sermons did Jesus give? He did mostly his teaching on the way with people because it's relational. Um, so I've, sorry, I'm picking on you, Tom, but I've listened to Tom talk a lot I've listened to him stand with a microphone and talk, but I talk to him all the time, and he, he's discipled me for years, and I would know. I would know if he was full of crap. <laughs> I really would. So when you're on this one-on-one -on -one relationship, and we would know that about each other when we're close, when you're discipling somebody, your kids know if you're full of trash. <laughs> they know whether you're walking it or not. They hear you. 
loud and clear when you say, I shouldn't have done that, I shouldn't have said that, I'm really sorry. That's discipling your kids in the way. And it's doable, it's small, it's bit by bit. It's the way that Jesus walked, which was discipleship. He says, be careful that you don't want to be a teacher, that uh, there's a lot of room in a desire for a teaching gift to be, that is full of selfish ambition. But discipleship, there's a lot of dying to yourself in that. And if you live in a house with other people, you know that. Um, let's go back to Acts chapter 17 and just finish this story. I am going to be short today. That's okay. Um, Acts 17, 22. Then Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with the inscription to the unknown God. They were covering all their bases. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing him, I proclaim to you, God, who made the world and everything in it. So they are in a... They're in the middle of all of this futile talking all the time. I don't know. They didn't work. I don't know why they weren't working. Too much, too much time on your hands. Um, it, and they're just talking and talking. And he comes in, and he's, he's going to tell them some truth. God, who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. Remember when Jesus came uh, with his disciples into Jerusalem and these country boys saw the temple and they were like, what? Have you seen this thing? It's sweet. It's amazing. And he told them, don't bother being too impressed. It's not going to last very long, right? Here's Paul telling these people the same thing. Listen, he does not dwell in temples made with hands. And they had one of the most beautiful temples that's ever been built in human history. Nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. He knew. He knew that their spirit men, where they were standing, that they were groping in the dark. And he's very nicely telling them in a super kind way, you guys are lost. For in him we live and move and have our being, as also some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art and man's devising. Truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent because he has appointed a day. He's like, you guys think you're enlightened, like you're moving uh, this idea of philosophy. It's moving on, right? They're modern men, and they're enlightened. And he's like, yeah. The Lord agrees to a certain extent. Back in the day, there was grace for making little stone idols. And he's like, we're coming out of that. Because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained, he has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some, some mocked, while others said, we will hear you again on this matter. So Paul departed from among them. However, some men joined him and believed. 
Um, So, Lord, help us to, like, hear what you're saying in all this. Um, We're called to be a light in the world, and that doesn't mean to disengage and stop conversing, stop going to the places where everybody is talking. But Paul left when he was done, right? Where he was not received, he shook the dust from his feet, and he moved on. But he went there. And look who he carried away with him, some who believed. The some who believe will always be the smallest group, probably. It's okay. Like it was true for Jesus, it's true for Paul, it's probably going to be true for us. It's okay. We are called to be the light in the church. And a lot of that happens, because I'm here and I talk to you guys all the time, but the church, a lot of that is happening on social media as well. The Lord is not calling us to disengage from that. But we don't cast our pearls before swine either. Um, He's calling us to be a faithful witness of the living way. And just to know that our our American Christianity, our culture, it's, it's it's all of Christianity mostly that has been taught from the beginning has this strong value base where it is like be good, like figure out some goodness and be good and live a good life and be a good man, be a good woman, be the kind of person that people be like, oh yeah, he's a good guy. And that's what Christianity means. And the Lord is saying, that is crumbling. Are you even saying out loud that was false the whole time? When it crumbles underneath somebody's feet, you know what I mean? You can, the Lord, I think, is calling us to be the hand that is grabbing them and saying, oh, yeah, I knew that would happen um, because God told me that that was all crumbling anyway. And, and he showed me the new and living way and, and to talk to people about what that looks like, which is an abiding relationship with Jesus. Steph, do you want to come back up? I think I'm done. I feel done. Um, so, Lord... Thank you. Um, thank you for the new and living way. Um, thank you for how we were lost, but now we're found. Lord, I pray um, if in any way we're still stumbling in the darkness, that we would just even ask you. Why are we still stumbling in the darkness? We're supposed to be in the new living way. God is our spirit man walking with you in the new and living way. And if it's not, that we would just humble ourselves and admit it and ask you to put us on it. Lord, um, I pray that we would be cognizant of the witness that we are in the world and in the church. Lord, would you... um, Would you purify our understanding of who you are and how we are to live? In Jesus' name.